0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of Imagine Publicity on Air. I'm Delilah Jones with Imagine Publicity, of course, and I hope that I'm bringing you topics and and issues that are of great interest to you. I think um, today's show will be no exception, I just want to preface this show by saying the interest in true crime is at an all-time high. You've seen it everywhere in books and movies and television shows, and especially those things surrounding the topic of serial killers and trying to figure out why they do what they do. Um, There's all kinds of information out there about high-profile serial killers like H.H. Holmes, Son of Sam. John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, and many more. But you know what? What we have to remember is there are scores of serial killers across the country at any given time who they're living just a a life that looks very normal. And we just don't know who they are. My guest today is the author of His Garden, Ann K. Howard, who Connecticut serial killer, William Devon Howell, studying his motives, his mind, and collecting his own work, the subject of being branded a serial killer, in the interest of privacy and sensitivity, we're not going to be naming the names of the victims of Howell's murder. We really wish to allow them and their families the dignity and the respect that they deserve. And welcome to Imagine Publicity on Air. Can you just start to show
1: up by maybe giving us a brief background of who you are? Sure, I'd be glad to, and thanks for having me, Delilah. Um, well, I am a practicing attorney in Connecticut. I grew up in Massachusetts and went to college in Montreal at McGill University. Um, When I was at McGill, I I studied English literature. So I've always had a great uh, interest in the written word, and I love to read and write. Uh, When I was at McGill years ago, I wondered if I would be a writer or a lawyer when I grew up. And uh, as it turned out, I became both. Um, so I went to law school at the University of Cincinnati and, uh, and uh, raised my kids in Ohio and circled all the way back to New England in 2015. Great. Well, you know
0: what, I'm just going to pounce on that elephant in the room. And to me that is what on earth led you to decide to write about this particular person?
1: Mm-hmm. and and
0: what he did why did you why right. did you feel compelled to do this
1: well you know i started a true crime blog back in february of 2015 when we first uh, came to connecticut and I kept hearing when I was writing that true crime blog, um, I, I, was, I was writing about unsolved murders in my community. Uh, there was a serial killer who had never been found, who had been leaving bodies of victims along a busy highway, not far from where I live. So, in researching those unsolved Route 8 murders for my true crime blog, serial murders in Connecticut, um, because you know I've always had a fascination in true crime. Uh, I kept coming across in the news feed information about this other serial killer who had yet to be found, who was leaving bodies behind a busy strip mall in New Britain, Connecticut. And uh, in May of 2015, lo and behold, the Attorney General posts this uh, man's mugshot uh, in a press conference that was aired nationwide to say that they had found uh, or s- strongly suspected uh, that this man, William Devon Howe, was responsible for leaving seven bodies behind a strip mall in New Britain, Connecticut. And so it was after watching that news conference that I realized I, I really need to reach out to this man. He was currently incarcerated for one of the seven murders. And I want to know... What makes him tick? I wanted to get inside the mind of a serial killer and uh, and find out what his motives were and uh, what led him to commit these heinous acts.
0: Was it very difficult to make contact with him and have him contact you back?
1: It was surprisingly easy, Delilah. Um, In my case, I just wrote to him in July of 2015, a a couple months after that news conference, and I was completely above board. I said, you know, I am writing a book about you. I want to write a book about you. I want to get to know you. I want you to help me to write that book by sharing with me your history. Um, And much to my surprise, he, he wrote back within a week or so he said he'd he'd struggled with whether or not he should write to me certainly his attorneys had strongly advised him against it uh but nonetheless he did write right back to me and what happened thereafter in the months and years that followed was um you know a a, a relationship that uh, baffled me uh, beyond belief uh uh it involved hundreds of pages of written correspondence from him Uh, prison visits that would last for anywhere between 60 to 90 minutes that took place on a monthly basis, and recorded phone calls where he would call my law office. And uh, eventually, uh, once he pled guilty in 2017, uh, all of those visits and letters and calls um, started to involve his confessions regarding the crimes.
0: How did how did you feel the first time you walked into the prison knowing that you were going to be face to face with a serial killer? Of course, you know, we have the image of a serial killer as somebody like Hannibal Lecter who could jump across mm-hmm. that table and
1: grab mm-hmm. you at
0: any minute. But I think that mm-hmm. is is kind of a little dramatic, wouldn't you say?
1: yes and 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 not really accurate in my case with respect to the plexiglass, the phone in my hand, uh, the fact that there were, that there were corrections officers all around us so i I felt safe i I've always felt safe, even from the, the first visit. I felt safe because we're in a high maximum prison um, where you know there's just no way this man can can get to me. Uh, On the other hand, though, I I was very anxious and nervous. I remember waiting in that lobby. I write about it in my book uh, before the big metal doors slid open to let me into the visiting room. Uh, And, uh, uh, you know, the adrenaline was just shooting through my veins. I didn't know if we would have anything to talk about. I didn't know if he would be scary in his demeanor. Uh, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And so when I did sit down and pick up that phone and finally talk to him, what what struck me right from the get-go was how friendly he was and how warm he was. And, you know, he made eye contact. He smiled a lot. Another thing that really struck me early on, and, uh, you know, I got used to it as time went by, uh, was how how much he would cry during our visits. And in our first visit, you know, he, I'd say he he had tears rolling down his face for the majority of that visit. Uh, It was in reference to just talking about his past girlfriends, talking about uh, the mother of his children, Talking about how lonely and isolated he felt, so they weren't necessarily tears of remorse. Uh, it had nothing to do with his victims or feeling sorry for what he had done, um, but um, just just that he did have that emotional component, and it was so visible um, that 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 took me by surprise. I bet. Well, why do you think it is that
0: he trusted you with his uh, with his Confessions, as you say, you finally were able to get confessions on on all of the murders that he committed.
1: Yes, I did. Um, I, I think unlike a typical reporter, he did not feel like a, I was an opportunist who was there to get tomorrow's front page headline, uh, nor did he feel like I was there to crack the case and to get him to confess. Um, I actually didn't want him to confess to me and start leaking uh, things to me that his attorneys would not want him to say uh, until there was a legal resolution. And that is actually how it all came about, is that once there was a legal resolution and he pled guilty, then he was free to divulge everything to me. Um, So I think in those really the first two years of getting to know him, I think a trust was formed, and it took a lot of time and patience on my part um, to, to um, show him that I genuinely was interested in who he was as a human being. I was interested in all dimensions of his life. And the reason I was is because I don't think you can write a substantial, compelling, and truthful book about a serial killer, unless you get that, that, that label out of your head, which brings with it all of those myths, those Hannibal Lecter, Jeffrey Dahmer type of things, uh, if you get that out of your head and you don't have an agenda and you go into it without preconceived notions, then the final product is that you can present to your readers a fully fleshed out and accurate portrait of who this man was and what led him to commit his crimes. Because I think you will agree that every serial killer is as unique as the day is long. You know, there are no typical serial killers. And so uh, I was there to write a biographical account of this man's life and explore uh, what led him to do what he did.
0: And it must have been quite interesting to, you know, over this length of time that you were interviewing and visiting with him, um, more and more came out, you know, according to the book. And I might say it was a quite interesting book to read. Everyone needs to get a copy. Um, But I think one of the things... That was really disturbing. Of course, was was his victims and his victims' stories. Um, mm-hmm. of, I don't think he didn't seem to be. To, in, as I was reading the book, he didn't seem to be interested in in relating their stories or relating who they were. Um, and as you stated, there was really no empathy that he had towards his victims. He had empathy towards a lot of other things and a lot of other people, but his
1: victims to him were very objectified. Definitely. He he compartmentalized them. You know, I, I, I wrote a a blog post about it in Serial Murders in Connecticut. I, uh, I would write uh, uh, observations and thoughts in real time as I was writing the book. And in one blog post, I had referenced, you know, how how Nazi soldiers in the concentration camps would would view the the victims of the Holocaust, that that they they would go home to their wife and children and be loving and kind and 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 display empathy uh, to their their spouse and child, but but that. They would objectify the Jewish men and women and children, um, and that's how they did what they did. That's an important part of evil, is that if you're going to be repeatedly raping and strangling someone, um, you cannot think of them as a human being um, with with uh, who who is suffering, who who has loved ones, who has feelings like you feel, because if you do think that, you're not going to be able to do it. And um, to this day, you know, I do believe that B- William Devin Howell has completely compartmentalized them, uh, thinking that these people who were all. Um, engaged in prostitution six of seven of them were also heroin addicts um so he he thinks uh that they deserved it he thinks that if they didn't put themselves in that reckless position uh it would never have happened so shame on them uh and that's how he rationalizes it uh i do think that if he if he did not rationalize it in that way, uh, he could not live with himself. You know, how can you live well, with yourself w- knowing that you, you stole someone's life and that that life had value?
0: Right. And I, I wonder from a psychological standpoint, where is the disconnect here? Where, you know, if wh- what switch has been turned off in that person's head that they can do this compartmentalization and they can carry out these acts without thinking of this person as a human being. How does that happen?
1: I've wondered that a lot myself. Um, he had told me uh, that that during the repeated 12-hour periods of raping and then ultimately strangling his victims, um, that he – saw himself as being in a movie and he disassociated from the events that were taking place. He saw himself as playing the part of the bad guy and he knows after the fact, of course, it wasn't a movie. It really happened. So he's not, he's not psychotic. He's not insane. He premeditated the murders. Uh, it, 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 it was totally within his control. But um, I liken it in his brain chemistry or his neurology to the experience that you and I would have if we go to a a Star Wars movie and we will ourselves to believe that this world is real before us for that you know 2 or 3 hour period we engage in a a level of uh detachment and fantasy and and I think that, that's what was going on in his head during the commission of the crimes. And, and like you
0: alluded earlier, that his victims were what society would deem as disposable people, which mm-hmm. angers me greatly. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, a human life is a human life, and it doesn't mm-hmm. matter who you are or what you've done or what you're in the middle of. It's a human life but Mm -hmm. these particular victims were, uh, do you feel like one thing led to another in their lives that put them into a vulnerable position to have him take advantage of them? Meaning, you know, you you stated that they were, most of them were heroin addicts. So Mm -hmm. once you are addicted to heroin, you will do anything to Mm -hmm. find the money to buy the next hit. And, you know, most women and men um, take to the streets and prostitute themselves mm-hmm. to to get that money, to get that next high. Um, mm-hmm. Is that what you're seeing as well? Do you feel like this particular lifestyle put them in that path?
1: Yeah, definitely I do. Um, you know, I, I say that there are two monsters in this book. There's the serial killer, William Devon Howell. And then the other monster is the heroin epidemic that turns people who would never have imagined themselves prostituting themselves, uh, let alone walking into that ghastly vehicle of his which he called the murder mobile without all sorts of red flags going off saying danger danger but when you are that desperate for a twenty dollar bill to get your next fix you will um, expose yourself to a serial killer and it's also no coincidence that you know so many of the serial killers that we read about in the news um, their victims are frequently drug addicted prostitutes and, you know, one could argue in William Devin Howell's case, well, it was because he hated prostitutes, and, and that's true. He did not respect them, and it helped rationalize his crimes that they were working the streets. But I think the more uh, honest and, and obvious factor here is that drug-addicted prostitutes are, are very easy prey. And when, when um, I, I had... Uh, uh, a British production company come to my house in May to film two shows that will be uh, airing on Netflix in late 2018 and 2019 um, inside the mind of a serial killer and um, a new show, 21st century serial killers. And the producer of that show, as, as you know, I took him to the scene of the crime and we went along the Berlin turnpike where a lot of Howell's victims would work the streets Uh, And as we looked around and and we literally observed prostitutes, you know, transacting in our midst and people doing drug deals in our midst as as we were filming, uh, you know, the producer commented that this is like a conveyor belt for a serial killer. And it really is. Uh, the opioid crisis and the drug and the heroin epidemic makes it so much easier for these sick monsters to to easily do what they do.
0: yeah, you're absolutely right, and it doesn't seem like this epidemic is slowing down anytime soon, which puts more people into these vulnerable situations with you know meeting up with Evil, and it's it's like you know they they know where the grocery store is. They they Mm -hmm. can just
1: exactly go there
0: and pick what they want, and that's it's really a sad situation. That
1: you know, hopefully, Mm -hmm.
0: some somewhere down the line, we can find a solution.
1: So, well, you know, in Connecticut. Oh, I'm sorry, but I I I wanted to say Connecticut is such a huge character in this book for me, Um, and Connecticut is. What we think of as an upscale state. there's, you know, a lot of wealthy people living in Connecticut. And what I, what I try to do in the book is juxtapose that wealth and, and affluence and that sense of safety that we have in this beautiful state um, with the, the contrast it with um, the fact that we have this heroin epidemic because we are so close to New York City. And to um, even you know Boston and Montreal and the drugs just flow into Connecticut and uh, and so it's interesting to me that one victim in particular Howell's first victim herself came from a very upscale home in Connecticut and uh, her parents uh, put her in private schools in Hartford to protect her from you know, the dangers of the streets. She went to private Christian schools, and it was walking home from those schools as a teenager that she would, you know, meet up with people on the other side, you know, uh, and gradually got into drugs. I mean, this is a girl that had the safest, uh, most affluent upbringing, and yet she ended up becoming a heroin. Addict on the street, so it can happen to any any family uh, anywhere across our nation. It's happening every day, and uh, you know, people who, who come from all walks of life will get involved with this heroin.
0: And I think I think that's a very good point to make is the fact that you know it's it's we're not talking we're not talking about a population of people that are expendable. I don't Mm -hmm. I I really I really that just so offends me Mm -hmm. but we're talking like you say if any it can happen to anybody it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. what your background is it doesn't matter what your family did or didn't do and it Mm -hmm. it just it doesn't matter how wealthy or how poor you were there seems Mm -hmm. to be and especially you know with with in regards to the heroin epidemic there are no other side of the tracks anymore it used to be exactly. those people on the other side of the tracks were the you know were the bad people but that's not true anymore there there are you're, no tracks you're so
1: right i know and when i i remember as a little girl in the 70s uh we you know when 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 i was in say junior high uh we we would see these these films in school about about you know don't do drugs don't do heroin and and I remember those films from the 70s they would show people in you know inner city New York City or Chicago in these vacant buildings shooting up and uh heroin and and it was all so dark and so removed from from my world And, and, and I, and I remember as a child thinking, how could anyone do that? And that would never be me. Um, But nowadays the heroines at the college parties, you know, and a lot of times uh, my clients, because I, I practice social security disability law, you know, I've had clients over the years who you have a failed back surgery. Uh, This was actually the case of one of Howell's victims. Um, You know, they, they, they are facing chronic pain and they are prescribed narcotics by their doctor. And then they get addicted to the narcotics and the doctor weans them off and tries to get them to stop. And when they can't get the proper prescribed medication, uh, what they frequently do is they start the heroin by simply snorting it. They buy it on the street. It's so much cheaper than than Vicodin or, or, or Percocet or oxycodin and, and if you just sniff it, it seems harmless enough. But then, of course, what happens is that's never enough, and they end up shooting up and becoming uh, addicts. And that is exactly what happened to one of Howell's victims. Uh, she had failed back surgery, and next thing you know, she was sniffing the heroin and, and then shooting it up. Ironically, that woman was herself a substance abuse counselor, she had a certification and a degree to help people get off drugs, and then she ended up on drugs herself
0: mm, wow, well then you know we could we could talk about the epidemic for days mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, but let's let's go back let's take Howell back to his childhood and you know speaking about how how People may, how we perceive people being um, what our families were, we are the product of. Um, what type of family background did Howell
1: have? He had a very traditional blue collar family background. And so I discuss that a lot in the book that nature versus nurture debate that is going on. You know, what makes a serial killer? Is he born that way? Is it something, is, does it stem from childhood abuse? Um the reality is that a lot of serial killers were not abused as children. Uh and so in Howell's background, you know, he 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 was spanked a lot by by both parents, especially by his mother. So people might say, well that that's what made him a serial killer. Um frankly, I I don't really buy into it. He says to me uh, that it had nothing to do with it and My mother never gave me a spanking that I didn't deserve kind of thing. So in 1970s America in Virginia and a blue-collar family, the fact that uh, a little boy gets spanked every time he misbehaves was really not out of keeping. I don't think it it made him a killer. Um, I do think uh, that his mother's death when he was 15 years old did have a significant impact Uh, on his life in that um, she had a long medical drama involving cancer and then strokes and uh, died when he was 15. And at the height of that medical drama, that's when he solicited his first prostitute at the age of 14, which is very young to go to the red light district. He stole his father's car and went to the red light district and, and a whole new world opened up to him after that night. And I think, in the face of this personal crisis of his mother dying, I think he found comfort and power by soliciting prostitutes at a very young age. And he tells me it it, it became a, a full blown sexual addiction. He's been with well over a thousand prostitutes over the years. Um, so I I I think that may have contributed to his crimes. His um, the powerlessness he felt in the face of his mother's death. Coupled with later in life, uh, at at the age of 16, he got a DUI and lost his license after only having it for a year because he also did have a drinking problem. And so thereafter, he was never able to obtain a valid driver's license through his 20s. And all of his incarcerations, and there were quite a few through his 20s and early 30s, All of them were simply based on the fact that he was caught driving under suspension, caught driving without a valid driver's license. I think that built a huge rage in him, that he would be behind bars seeing men who were convicted of violent crimes, uh, bank robbers, whatever, and they were serving shorter sentences than he was. Because as a habitual offender, he kept getting longer and longer sentences. So he was trapped in this legal bureaucracy. It made him very angry. So I personally believe, um, and I I, I greatly appreciate reader feedback on what they think after they've read the book, I think when you look at the whole picture of what made William Devin Howell a serial killer, you can really um, pinpoint two things. Number one, a sexual paraphilia, a sexual sadism, he something in his brain that caused him to derive uh, sexual arousal and satisfaction from raping um, these prostitutes. But the second thing is a, a sense of, of immense powerlessness in his personal life, not being able to see his two little children. The mother of the children kept him from seeing them, um, being trapped in, um, in jail for so many years, having no uh, social status in our society. And so when he was committing these crimes, he told me that he felt this adrenaline rush of power. It was the first time in his life that he ever experienced that sense that he was in control and he held the reins and he had the power. And um, you know, I think most psychologists would agree that rape is, is is not just about sex. Sex is part of it, but it's it's about power, and that's what he that's that's what made him do what he did.
0: Yeah, it's you know, most dysfunctional and violent relationships. It's all power and control, and you know, it's, it. I think it manifests itself in different ways from different people. But I agree with with exactly what you said. But it, it's it's still difficult to understand, uh, you know, what could drive you over the edge so far, the mm-hmm. to keep doing what you're doing. I, mm-hmm. if, you know, for so called normal people, whatever that might be, mm-hmm. um, it's just very hard for us to wrap our head around that mm-hmm. type of a situation. Um, mm-hmm. Did you speak with any of his family members, and what did they have to say about his upbringing and, and how he basically turned out?
1: Yeah, um, well, uh, his parents are both dead. His One of his three brothers is dead. The two remaining brothers want nothing to do with him and were not uh, uh, open to any communication with me. Um, I did speak with childhood acquaintances of House. I spoke with um, many people who knew him both in Virginia when he was growing up and also people who knew him when he moved to Connecticut in 2001, two years before the killing spree took place. And, uh, you know, they all pretty consistently described for me a very friendly, nice guy, uh, very courteous, uh, you know, a heavy drinking, partying, good old boy from Virginia, uh he w- was not uh into drugs he did not uh, steal he did not commit any crimes other than these um so uh he, it's not to say he didn't have some domestic violence issues with the mother of his children and the girlfriend he was with at the time of the killing spree it was that kind of domestic violence that i would phrase as you know the the pushing and shoving that goes back and forth in a toxic relationship um, so it, it, on a level, a scale of one to 10, you know, I'd say it was about a, a four or five, you know, he wasn't, you know, beating, uh, his, his, um, girlfriends up or, but there was just that kind of pushing and shoving and fighting when he would had too much to drink. Um, so he was by no means an angel in his personal life, but not at all what you would think of when, when imagining a man who could do the terrible things that he did.
0: Yeah, well, let me ask you in in the whole process of of meeting him on a regular basis and visiting and listening to everything he had to say and and you know the horror and 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 the the good things as well. What sort of a toll did this take on you as you were writing his story?
1: Mhm. You know, I I think the biggest toll it took on me began uh, a good two years into the project in September of 2017 when he actually started to confess his crimes to me. That's when it really hit home for me. Up until then, I kept it arm's length, and I kept the horror of his crimes sort of in my mind as though they were not real. It was something I'd read about um but but it was not until he started to tell me when why when how why where and all the gruesome details um uh, that it it really um it really shook me to the core emotionally. I, I think in many ways you know, I don't want to get overly dramatic about this, but I, I think I, I kind of had a, a, a kind of residual PTSD uh, in the months that followed after hearing his confessions. Because at the same time, I was meeting with victims' family members and interviewing them for the book. So I would, you know, have a phone call with Howell or visit him in prison and look him in the eye and hear what he did from his own mouth, to these women. And then, you know, a few days later, I'd talk on the phone with that woman's daughter, you know. And, and uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was hard for me to process that this man, who I'd actually come to like on many levels, was capable of, of such atrocities. Um, it's something I still really struggle with, but, um, you know, I would have nightmares. I, I, uh, you know, I would find myself kind of getting very weepy, um, really from September when he started confessing the crimes to me through, through, well, through about March or April when I submitted the book to the publisher, uh, I, I would, uh, just, for no reason at all, just start to cry, um, you know, in the privacy of my home. And I, and I wouldn't know why, uh, but I was just overcome by the darkness of it. When he also told me that these were 12 hour crimes, um, that, that as well, it literally gave me nightmares that he would hold his victims captive and, and verbally berate them and, and, and put them down and, and, and make them suffer. Um, I think up until then I, I was in a a state of denial where I wanted to think it was just a real quick kill, you know, not that that's any better, but at least that he didn't make them suffer. So when he explained to me how he enjoyed making them suffer, that, that just, uh, that that really uh, deeply troubled me.
0: Yeah, I think that would definitely flip the switch, especially no. especially knowing that, you know, even even though these victims were were very vulnerable and were caught up in drugs and prostitution, they he took away their opportunity to get clean. Mm-hmm. He took away their opportunity to to see what they really could have made out of themselves or the fact, I mean, they, they may have been in the path of another serial killer. I mean, but this mm-hmm. is something we'll never know mm-hmm. because that opportunity was taken away from them completely. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, that's very well, chilling and hard to deal with.
1: You know, I, it's, uh, the, the age old adage, God works in mysterious ways. Um, I think it's so odd now, but I think it's actually a very good thing that uh, one of the few people that writes to Howell in prison right now is a a former prostitute, a former heroin addict, who thinks that she may have actually transacted with him uh, back in the day during this killing spree. She reached out to me wow. behind the scenes and said, I, I think I, I met up with him a few times when I was uh, d- working the streets back then. And she now, uh, as, as Howell tells me, she's got religion. You know, she's a holy roller, he says, you know, because that's how he thinks of it. Uh, but, but, you know, she ended up going through rehab, getting her life together, and uh, now she has a husband and children. And I think her motive in writing him, is this kind of sense of Christian charity. A lot of people would not get that, um, but but nonetheless, that is her motive. Um, and, and he has said to me, it's so strange to think that this woman, who's one of the only people in this world who's showing me any kindness other than you, Anne, uh, that this woman, who is such a lovely, kind woman to me, I could have raped and killed her in the back of my van.
0: And she's an example of what could have been. Mm -hmm.
1: I think that's
0: that's very ironic as to, Mm -hmm. you know, that, and, and it's nice. I think it's nice that she is doing this and I hope that, you know, she can possibly make some kind of sense out of all of this, um, -hmm. that, I, I couldn't. I, there's no yeah. way. I, I just couldn't make sense out of all of this. Well, no, what do you but think about... if there about- is a
1: tool, this she is it, if mm-hmm. there is a tool to help him realize that his victims were human beings, this woman is it to say that mm-hmm. these people were capable of love and redemption.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, let's hope that that's what it takes. I I don't know. From a psychological standpoint, I kind of don't think that he's going to He's going to see the light, so to speak.
1: But I agree with anyway. Too far gone. He's too far gone, and Mm -hmm. I gave up trying to. You you know, the 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 key I think when when working with someone like Howell is to understand that if you are not a sociopath, you can't understand how sociopaths think. So you know, you you say, well. doesn't he feel this? Doesn't he feel that? And you're projecting all of your normal human emotions on a sociopathic mind. Right, right. No, it, it, there
0: is no understanding there from from mm-hmm. what I've read and what I've been, you know, um, exposed to in those mm-hmm. types of personality disorders. They're just, you know, there's no cure. There's no pill. There's no, no redemption. There's no there's nothing you can do with it so what Absolutely. what is the answer i mean yes they are also human beings but they are very dangerous human beings to the rest yeah. of society
1: and he would he has told me and others that if given the opportunity he would continue to have killed if i you know and i've asked him if if you were released tomorrow which of course he got 360 years, so that's never going to happen. But would would you go on and kill, rape, and kill again? And he shrugs and says, "I don't know." So you know, let's not be naive here. He, if he were released, absolutely, he'd just keep doing it over and over and over again.
0: Right, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's not something that. I think prison can rehabilitate this type no. of a criminal. <laughs> it's not going to yeah. happen. I right. don't even think right. a mental hospital could make a dent. Mm-mm. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, he, obviously he's where he needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, what about what do you? What is your theory on other victims? I'm, I'm very interested in this mm-hmm. because of the fact that he traveled so much in Virginia and North Carolina. I I volunteer for a missing persons organization mm. and we have a lot of cases in those areas, so it mm. really piqued my interest um when mm-hmm. I felt like the possibility was if he, you know, if he's killing in Connecticut, that's not the only place he's killing.
1: Yeah, you know what? I I think of all the possibilities of um if he has other victims. The strongest one is that he may have other victims in North Carolina and Virginia during a very short time period, which would be from uh, November of 2000. And, oh gosh, let me get this straight here. I have all these dates in my mind. Uh, From November 2003 until he was extradited back to Connecticut in february of 2004 so we're only looking at you know four or five months but i think that's the greatest likelihood of of that detectives need to look at that particular window and they need to look at the area of newport news virginia where he solicited prod, prostitutes in the red light district and also near the place where he was staying in north carolina now of course he could have a long line of victims dating back to you know his teen years when he first started soliciting pro- prostitutes. He could have many more victims in Virginia, North Carolina during the the 80s and 90s. Um, he could have more victims in Connecticut. But the the reason I'm interested in that one window of time, and I've talked to detectives uh, since the book came out on many occasions uh, to explore um, you know other other opportunities he may have had. And they, they are looking into those cases in Virginia and North Carolina quite aggressively. So they, and they, they were during the investigation as well. Um, but period was when he was still driving that infamous murder mobile where all seven of his victims perished. And that van held a very important role in the commission of his crimes. For some reason, he says to me that if it weren't for living in that van as a transient drifter, he may never have done these crimes. Now, can I take him at his words? Is he lying through his teeth? Possibly so. You know he's a serial killer, uh, but on the other hand, he claims that when he had a place to live, if he were living with a girlfriend or a family member or friends he he always felt like he had a place to go home to people were keeping an eye on him and he is a very sociable guy and that meant a lot to him but he said when he was living out of that van that he bought in Connecticut in uh in in about 2000 and late 2001 there was something about the freedom of that drifter lifestyle and you know a lot of serial killers do um what they do in 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 vehicles like that um so it w- it was a death chamber for him, and he was in control of that death chamber and uh i I wonder if when he had he was still driving that van for that pocket of time in Virginia and Newport News, if there are other victims down there um the van was seized in April of two thousand and four, so he no longer had it to drive around in, and he was for the most part incarcerated. At all times after that, so um, yeah, certainly uh, uh, there there could very well be other victims, and he has agreed to take a polygraph test. So I, you know, I got I persuaded him to do that, and uh, hopefully that that's in the works. I've talked to detectives about it. They're trying to get permission to uh, get him shipped out of the prison to the courthouse so they can admi- administer a polygraph.
0: What parts of North Carolina was he?
1: Um, you know, I, w- I wish. I- does Does Birdie County sound right? Does that sound right? Yes. Uh Yeah. Yep. Birdie County. Mm-hmm. I know exactly where
0: it is. Okay. Mm-hmm. That tells me a
1: lot. Um, mm-hmm. And when
0: you say the van was seized in 2004, where was the van when it seized? Was it in Connecticut or or Virginia or North Carolina?
1: Uh, it It was down. What What happened was. The killing spree that we know about, that he's been convicted of, occurred between February 2003 and October 2003. So it was, it was a very brief nine-month time period. And uh, so in November of 2003, after he claims he killed the last victim, okay, we're assuming that was his last victim, he drove down to visit a friend in Hampton, Virginia, in that van. And he stayed with him for a while, and then he drove to visit another friend, Harry, in North Carolina. And so when he was extradited back to Connecticut by Detective Derone based on a parole violation that was pending in Connecticut, uh, the van remained at Harry's house uh, in the boondock somewhere in Birdie County, and uh, the police in April of 2004 went down and seized that van and towed it back to Connecticut. It remains in the Sally Port of the Wethersfield Police Department, and actually Howell has given me title to that van. And um, it's ready for pickup. I've got to get that van and tow it to the junkyard and get it crushed. Um, I haven't done it yet because I I wanted actually to talk to so, some of the victims' families um, to see if there was anything they needed uh, in order to gain closure with respect to my doing that. You know, I you mm-hmm. never know people grieve differently. Some of the victims' sure. families w- wanted to know specifics, every detail, and I'd say to them, you know, are you sure you want me to tell you this? And they'd say, yes, it, it will help me. Not knowing is worse than knowing. So you know I I I still need to discuss with them do is there any any desire on any of your part to just see where your mother you know perished I mean so that that's something I'm looking into now but yeah I uh, I have absolutely no intention of doing anything other than crushing that van no memorabilia sites nothing Although I did have one uh, person suggest to me that uh, you know there may be more DNA at a future date. Are you sure you want to crush evidence that might lead to more cold cases getting solved? But my answer was, well, uh, I'm not paying for the storage fee. So,
0: <laughs> well, that's someone... quite true. That that does happen, and if if there is yeah. suspect of him, mm-hmm. you know, with other other cases, and I w- I would highly I would be very surprised if there weren't more, because people like this mm-hmm. generally escalate. And, right. you know, it, I think at the time that he was caught, he was at the height of his ex- escalation to mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. this many murders in such a short period of time. So, yes, I, mm-hmm. I truly believe that there are a lot more that he, you know, started someplace and, and he yeah. didn't just... Yeah you know, didn't just go out in Connecticut and do this. Well, Well, in many
1: ways, when the reader reads the book, they can, they can consider all that too, because when I describe his first murder, there was a sense of novelty to it that he, he, he communicated to me. It was his first, he was terrified. He was nervous. He didn't know what he was doing. So, you know, so, so, you know, that's what's interesting about the book is it's, there, there are a ton of facts, and it's based on laborious research on my part, but, and, and it's all supported by police affidavits and, and trial transcripts. But the component, part two of the book, his confessions, that's up for debate. That's for the reader to decide, is he telling the truth? Right. And let's let people
0: know where they can get this book, his garden.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's available at Amazon.com. It's we've got a Kindle version, a paperback version. The audio will be coming out in a couple months. Um, you can get it directly from the publisher, Wild Blue Press, online, or uh, you know, many Barnes and Noble stores, at least in Connecticut, are carrying it these days. Um, if if anyone wanted to contact me or know more about me. Um, you know, my Amazon uh, page for His Garden Conversations with a Serial Killer has an author, uh, author page. They can go to my author link and follow me or contact me or contact me through the Wild Blue Press's, uh page for my, my author's site. Um, even Goodreads is a great way to, uh, to contact me if anybody has a question um, and follow me on Goodreads.
0: Great, and it, this has been a very fascinating conversation, and I appreciate you you coming on and and telling us about this in in such a, a I want to say a respectful way, um, mm-hmm. and I want to say that you know we do offer condolences and and our sympathies to the victims of this man, but on the other hand, I think anyone who can do what you did in the in the sense to understand, we need to understand, we have to know right. these things, we have to know how these people tick in order to be proactive or be exactly. more preventative in the next, so that the next exactly. time maybe we can do something more than what we're not doing now to protect people. Right, and
1: people. It's, not, it's not exclusive to FBI profilers, you know, I mean, if you, if you have no. an interest in true crime and in serial killers and you want to pursue this intellectually, then, you know, all knowledge is a good thing. And I, I certainly know in the early stages doing it, detectives were a little skeptical. Who, who is this woman who's, you know, trying to play our role, you know? But now, you know, funny how they all came around in the end, and now they're calling me, wanting to know, get input from me. So the more hands mm-hmm. you have on the case, like the true crime author Michelle McNamara, who unfortunately unfortunately Mm -hmm. died writing about the golden state killer you know the the more good minds you have uh zealously questioning uh the more power you have that's right
0: that's right and i want to thank everyone at wild blue press for bringing you to me and uh unfortunately our time is up well it was a pleasure to speak with you delilah
2: These days, people love keeping stats, calories, shares, likes, steps. But what about a more important stat? There are over 300 fatalities a year due to impaired driving right here in South Carolina. 300 preventable deaths. This is Trooper Wilkes reminding you and your friends not to drink and drive. And if you see someone about to drive drunk, dial star 47. Working together, we can target zero traffic fatalities. In South Carolina, it's sober or slammer. Brought to you by the South Carolina Department of Public Safety. These days, people love keeping stats, calories, shares, likes, steps. But what about a more important stat? There are over 300 fatalities a year due to impaired driving right here in South Carolina. 300 preventable deaths. This is Trooper Wilkes reminding you and your friends not to drink and drive. And if you see someone about to drive drunk, dial star 47. Working together, we can target zero traffic fatalities. In South Carolina, it's sober or slammer. Brought to you by the South Carolina Department of Public Safety.